Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Congressional Democrats are slowly but surely continuing negotiations over what to include in the Build Back Better Act, Democrats' reconciliation package that they hope to pass soon on a partisan basis. While they do that, NAHU has been busy submitting written testimony for congressional hearings on issues relevant to you. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU's Vice Presidents of Congressional Affairs, Chris Hartman and John Green, are here to discuss those hearings in addition to any new information on what may or may not be included in this reconciliation bill. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Let's start with a reconciliation update. Just today, as of recording this podcast, a framework was released for the Build Back Better Act. So with this new framework, what is the latest information on what is included or what has been removed from the bill? So the Biden administration today put out framework documents, and these are from negotiations the Biden administration have had with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. Senator Manchin and Sinema are amongst the most moderate to conservative Democrats in the Senate, who a lot of these negotiations have been going on with. They've been very uncomfortable with the $3 trillion bill the House has put together and many of the provisions that were in there from the revenue raisers. The, they were uncomfortable with the increase in taxes on corporations and individuals, and they were also uncomfortable with uh, the large amount of spending across the board. And so this package comes in closer to a 1.5 to 1.7 sort of range. There is in this framework a lot of details left to be put in, but it does demonstrate what Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema would be willing to vote for. Within the healthcare arena, there are some details in here. As we've been discussing, the priority amongst the more moderate to conservative Democrats are making those individual market tax credits permanent that were in the American Rescue Plan. For the 9 million Americans who are in that individual market, the framework does continue those tax credits that were set to expire in another year uh, to now make them in a much more permanent basis. The bill also deals with closing the Medicaid gap. So now in the House bill, the way the House bill worked was there would be some tax credits and then there would be a federal Medicaid program that would fill in for the states that did not expend Medicaid. Well, this eliminates a federal Medicaid program and there will not be one, uh, which is something NHU is happy about because we were fearful that a federal Medicaid program could easily turn into a public option. And instead, what this does is allows for the ACA tax credits to go down below the levels that they were before to get people who uh, were not either qualifying for Medicaid or tax credits and were left in that gap. And so this would provide premium assistance for those benefits there. We've also in the, in the House bill talked about expanding Medicare into vision, dental, and hearing. Uh, this framework says that there will not be dental or vision 
but there will be expansion into hearing, particularly allowing hearing aids in there. You know, this week I met with Senator Kristen Sinema herself. We discussed NIHU's concerns about some of the expansions in the Medicare arena, particularly when we were looking at the solvency of Medicare. And she said she was interested in making sure people can get hearing aids, but she agreed the vision and particularly the dental was too expensive for keeping the system solvent. So this is a much more modest proposal that's out here. I think we're going to continue to see things evolve, particularly on the prescription drug front. There is a repeal of the rebate rule that was put out before the rebate rule. We did have concerns would sort of increase cost for especially employers and others because you would eliminate rebates that often employers are getting, but it wouldn't necessarily guarantee that prescription drug costs would go down. So that has been eliminated within this proposal. We are hearing from certain news sources, including Politico, that Senator Sinema has come to a deal with the White House on prescription drug reform. It is not going to be anything close to the HR3, the level of Medicare uh, negotiating prices, something much, much smaller. But we are looking for the details on that and hopes those are cost savings that we can pass on to consumers. There are also some provisions that are left out, either will remain out or be put back in once some agreement is made, but they have to score all of this, right? They have to figure out, does it meet that budget top line of $1.7 trillion or not? And then, of course, you know, then how do they pay for this overall package? There are other provisions that are somewhat related to healthcare. Obviously, there is some assistance to childcare. We also expect uh, some of the Medicaid program to allow more home assistance to going in here. Those were all also included in the framework here. Obviously, the bill deals with everything from childcare tax credits to environmental concerns and others as an association. We're very focused just on the healthcare provisions, but there are provisions in here about for older Americans with disabilities in their homes of, of providing through Medicaid more assistance for home healthcare workers to be able to assist seniors with those sorts of services. And that will be part of through the Medicaid framework. So we don't believe that will have necessarily an impact on the long-term care insurance, but more within the Medicaid universe themselves. Paid leave is another issue, again, not a healthcare issue per se, but an issue important to a number of members. And that's not mentioned here either, probably because they're still trying to work out details around that. But the reason that all of these issues are important, you know, they got, as we understand it, 90% of it is in terms of a framework is agreed to. Many of these parts have been written in actual legislative text, but it's that last 10%. And that's always the hardest mile in any negotiation. And it either will pass or not pass based on what the outcome of that final 10% of what's left to be negotiated. And so I think that we're still a ways out from having something to vote on and text to see those details that Chris talked about that we don't know yet. Um, But the president is speaking to Democrats on the Hill today in the hopes of seeing if he can get the progressives to at least buy into what they have 
agreed to so far and to help perhaps spur interest in voting on the infrastructure bill, which he feels is important for him as he moves to Scotland to uh, this climate summit. But the framework, if he can get progressives to say, you know, on that, that's a pretty good darn start. And he wants to be able to at least talk about those climate provisions when he goes to Scotland. It's kind of hard to go to a conference on climate and not have something in your, your back pocket, but that's where things are right now. And I agree with John, a lot of this framework that came out today is to try to convince progressives that there will be a second bill and therefore they should pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I think you're looking at a lot of the supply chain issues and other concerns that are going on in the U.S. economy. A lot of those would be much more addressed by infrastructure and not the sorts of things in this bill. And so I think the Biden administration is concerned about holding up a finished bill that's already passed the United States Senate that we could begin working on a lot of the supply chain issues that we're having. I mean, people, I think, are finding more and more items not being able to arrive on time with the infrastructure that we have in this country and the current supply chain setup. And so there's a big push and trying to get that passed now. Progressives have been stopping that bipartisan initiative uh, because they are fearful that some of these more social programs would not get passed if infrastructure then passed. We are pleased to see that some of our biggest concerns around healthcare were not included in here. For example, lowering the age of Medicare is not included in this provision. There is no public option or anything that could turn into a public option that's in there here. So some of our big red lines and things that I know we've been involved in Operation Shouts are not included in this as much as Bernie Sanders and some of the Senate progressives were pushing for our strong relationships with people like Senator Sinema, who we were talking to with this week, Senator Manchin, Senator Tester, I think really will stop those sorts of provisions from ever getting anywhere. And there are a couple of less, quote, sexy issues in healthcare that are not put into the framework. But And we've talked about these two issues on the podcast before, but one has to do with the mental health parity of potential civil monetary penalties for employers who can't meet uh, network adequacy requirements, where we're working very hard with senators to strip that out and really trying to educate them as well on what it would mean to lower the employer responsibility from nine and a half to eight and a half without any caps and the impact that would have. So all these discussions that we're having on the Hill, we're just sort of doing quietly through talking to professional staff who understand the nitty gritty of, you know, the impacts that those kind of policy decisions could have on employer coverage. And in those conversations with committee staff, senators, like I said, Senator Tester, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, Senator Warner, some of our concerns about possible revenue raisers and other ways of coming up with income to pay for this, since corporate tax cuts and others rates were not going to go up for Manchin and Cinema, we were concerned that people would try to look to other areas, for example, the employer exclusion or cuts to Medicare Advantage. In our conversations with Senator Sinema, she was very adamant that there should be no cuts to Medicare Advantage, that, that we should not do anything to make premiums for our seniors on MA any higher. So we, we worked with her to really oppose any damage to the MA system. Millions of seniors are enjoying their MA benefits. We worked with her very closely to ensure that there would be no damage to the MA program and no one's MA uh, rates would start increasing. So we're very pleased with all the work that Senator Masinema has done to protect seniors in that arena. So with that all being said, and this last 10%, as you mentioned, needing to be negotiated, 
What do you think is now the timeline for potential passage for this bill? I still don't think this passes very quickly. There's still discussions to be going on. I suspect that there will be people like Senator Sanders who will be very disappointed in this framework and essentially the outline of the bill because it is much less sort of progressive and large as some of the more Senate progressives want. I think at some point they will have to decide if they're willing to take half a loaf instead of a full loaf, but that will slow the process down for some time. I think we need a lot of details on timelines for some of these things. Are some of these provisions things that are only going on for a couple of years, or is there going to be enough money in these programs to make them permanent? I think those are all sorts of things that are not outlined here in this framework. As John was talking about, a lot of this is scoring required. So the different areas that are revenue raisers, what sort of scoring will a prescription drug bill do? Obviously, it's not going to be anywhere near the 500 billion that the HR3 scores. So what does provisions that is agreed to uh, actually score at? And so those sorts of things, I think, are what's going to take some time. I think some of these provisions are still going to be debated about. I think there are going to be senators who still want to say, try to, uh, in a paid family leave, we see that sort of provisions. As much as Senator Manchin said, he's not interested in seeing paid family leave included here. So those sorts of things, I think, are going to continue to slow the bill down. But I do think we are closer than we've been. I think now this is a document that came out today is something for us to be working much more off of. Up to this point, we were very much working off of the House version of the bill. I think the House version of the bill was sort of more closer to a pie in the sky, everything that you could possibly want, minus a few things that we we hate, like lowering the Medicare age the senators wanted to include. But now we've seen that none of that is going to be in this version of the bill. But we're going to continue meetings. We have meetings coming up and scheduled with Senate Finance, with Senator Schumer, several others to continue these discussions, because just because we haven't seen something in the framework here doesn't mean there are other conversations going on. So this does not mean that we can sort of let our foot off the gas. If anything, this is the time to speed up and have more conversations as the deal is starting to actually come together. And since it does look like there are the more moderate side of the party is willing to vote for this, that something's likely to happen. Uh, We want to make sure we're in the room while it's happening. It's unlikely that infrastructure will be voted on. And therefore, uh, you know, with the expiration of funding for infrastructure coming up on Sunday, that they will kick the can and extend that funding until December 3rd. Having said that, where does that leave reconciliation? I think that they try to square that away ahead of having to deal with the debt limit and those sorts of things. So I don't know. I think sometime before Thanksgiving, if I were a betting guy, by then they would have the rest of the framework completed, the rest of it written and scored, and then debate would come down to, okay, can we live with what is presented here? And so do progressives in the House have the numbers if they want to, to prevent this from going through? Well, really, that's the trillion dollar question. Uh, You know, I I suspect if you put the bill on the floor, particularly the way that things have become polarized and how this bill has been seen as sort of being attached to the other reconciliation bill, maybe you get about five House Republicans to vote for it. I don't know, John, if you have a different number, but is that really going to be enough to make up for 
what AOC and Jayapal can also have a vote against the bill? And can you make up those sorts of numbers there? So I think that number is about right, probably on one hand. And the reason for that is this linkage between reconciliation and infrastructure. It's not that they don't approve of what's in the infrastructure bill per se. It's more political. It's the tying of the two bills together. I think that the progressives does have enough votes to withhold passage. Now, in addition to lobbying aspects of this reconciliation bill, NAHU is also plenty busy with congressional hearings in the meantime. We submitted two pieces of written testimony to the Senate Finance Committee and House Energy and Commerce Committee, respectively, in this past week. The Senate Finance hearing, which took place last week, was focused on health insurance coverage in America and the current and future role of federal programs. And the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee held their hearing. Theirs was on legislation to support patients, caregivers, and providers. So what do we write to members of Congress in these areas? Well, our expertise is really around markets. And so it was a great opportunity to talk about how the insurance market hangs together, what the impact of public options would be, and actually reducing choices for people, particularly in underserved areas, and how it would not really raise insurance rates among the population at large. And the importance of having firewalls in particular between these markets to not allow people who are eligible for employer coverage, for example, to uh, move into a public option or public program. And so I think that was rather unique in our testimony relative to what other groups uh, would say on this topic. Our message was quite similar in the ENC testimony. I was very pleased with the way that we framed these issues because I do think that we bring a unique value to this discussion. Yeah, I I believe that we did a very good job of explaining how a public option actually reduces options. It reduces choice. Eventually that uh, you end up with less options because it all sort of devolves down to just the government option because they can uh, force providers into lower reimbursement rates and essentially becomes a backdoor way into single payer. I think we also did a great job of discussing the individual market versus the employer market and why there is a firewall between the two in order to keep stable the different markets and uh, keeping the risk pools clear. So I think those are things that we will continue to discuss at these hearings. I think NHU brings a particular vitally important perspective, that of the employer and the employer-based insurance market, and specifically why employers are interested in offering health insurance. And this is something that the insurance carriers don't really necessarily bring to the table in the same sort of way. So I think this is some, an important voice that we bring to these hearings. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So what are we toasting to this week? So this week, Dan, we're toasting to lowering the age of Medicare to 60 and a public option not being included in the Build Back Better framework. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.